Today's reading is from Psalm 72. Um, Please stand and prepare your hearts for the reading of God's holy word. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The word of God for the people of God. Thanksgiving holiday crowd here today. Small intimate gathering. Yeah, Psalm 72. What we're looking at here uh, is the beginning of a new Advent series. I'm always uh, looking teaching and uh, preaching goes uh, for this season, and we've talked about uh, the uh, hope uh, from the book of Isaiah as he prophesies about the, the son of Jesse who is to come, the, um, the Messiah who is to bring his kingdom. We've talked about it from the book of Ruth, and we've talked about it from John and from Luke. And so this hope of a better kingdom This hope of a Messiah and a king who would come and reign and restore all things to its rightful place and redeem all of creation, uh, that hope is throughout all of the scriptures. That is the hope of every Christian. It is uh, the major theme of what we all share and hope for and believe in a world that has gone wrong, in a world where we wake up and face the brokenness from outside and even from within side. And so I think it is really appropriate to take 
advantage of this season of Advent to kind of reorient ourselves not only to a future hope, but I think even more importantly right now to ask ourselves, what present peace does this give us? There's a future hope for a present peace. It's not just all about what is going to happen later, although we are assured that it will happen, but that assurance is meant to affect our lives even today. So we don't say, well, it doesn't really matter what happens today because everything's going to be fine. That's not how we comfort people. So let's, let's look together over these next few weeks. What would it look like uh, for us to live as though we believe that these promises are true? What would it look like for us to live day to day and how would that affect us? That's what we're going to try to be, try to be answering over these next few weeks. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get started here and talk about what these psalms mean. Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that we can go to it and see that there's a consistent story throughout the Scriptures, although it seems disconnected to many of us who aren't familiar with it. Um, there's a connected theme of covenant promise that long ago you said that you would make things right, that you would send a rescuer, and you sent that rescuer, and we revel in that, and we, we celebrate that. And Lord, I thank you that we are told that he will come again, that this plays out in two perfect parts that He will come and rescue us, that He died in the first Advent to give us the hope that sin would not win, and He promises to come back and make sure that evil will be vanquished forever. He will purge this world of evil, and we thank You for that hope. Show us what that means for our present lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, a little bit of context here for why the book of Psalms is here what it's about, um, why I chose it. Um, the Psalms are part of the wisdom literature, so really while we're going into this Advent series, we're staying within this whole larger wisdom series called the Quest for Wisdom because there's much wisdom for us to gain here as this um, actual psalm is written by Solomon himself. Uh, it was uh, a prayer of David for Solomon that was uh, prayed for Solomon late in David's life, right before he died. And then Solomon himself, once he became king, recorded the psalm in as part of uh, the Psalter for the worship of God's people. While most psalms are written by King David, um, there's also psalms written by Asaph and Iman and Solomon and Moses and even a guy named Heman. Um, I think it's Haman. Um, but uh, this particular psalm is believed uh, to have been, a, like I said, a prayer at the end of his life for his son. Um, there's 150 psalms. Psalms are split up into five books. They have this benediction at the end of each book. That's how we know a book is ending. And this psalm is the um, beginning of book two. And they're divided into these five different books because they're meant to be offered as, some of you all may have heard of the Torah, um, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that in the Jewish tradition, that's what they believe is the Word of God, and that's what they studied in the, in the Jewish tradition during this time. That's the five books that they, uh, that they had. And then these uh, psalms were written as meditations on those five books. So they split it up into five separate books to almost be uh, a worship guide to learning how to live under the, uh, live in obedience underneath the commandments of God in the original Torah. So they're sent to kind of match each other and be a deeper dive into what it looks like to keep God's commandments in the Torah. They serve as prayers for God's people, and they strive, as they strive to be faithful to 
God's Word. They serve the same way for us. These are meant to be um, songs and prayers for us to guide and direct our worship. Um, So that means that we too can use prayers like Psalm 72 as we strive to live as God's people in hopeful expectation and anticipation of Christ's second advent and return. Um, Like I said, this psalm actually concludes book two. It depicts a future reign of the Messianic king. Um, This is about a kingdom that uh, Israel is to strive to be like, but one that will actually come as well. So it's, it's prophetic in the sense that it is talking about what Israel um, was supposed to be and then what Israel will actually be at Christ's second coming. Um, there's two main types of psalms, psalms of lament and psalms of praise, and these are in, important to understand. Psalms of lament are prayers of pain and confusion and anger, drawing attention to what's wrong with the world. They ask God to do something about it. They serve as an appropriate response to evil in the world. This is what's really refreshing about Christianity. Christianity calls a spade a spade. Christianity says this world is not working as it should. And it's okay for us to acknowledge that. In other words, becoming a Christian is not just putting a happy smile on your face and acting like everything's okay because we believe in a God of love. It's saying, no, the world is broken. God allows us to come before Him in lament. That means you can bring your pain and your sadness to this benevolent God. That's, that that kind of washes over a lot of us, especially if we've been walking with the Lord for years. That's huge. The God of Christianity wants to hear your complaints. In fact, he wants to be the main source for it. Because what our temptation is, is to either gossip or complain to other people or shake our fist at God. And God says, I am big enough to handle your pain and your sadness because I've handled the brokenness of the whole cosmos. You can bring it to me. And Psalms depicts that, that this is not some new thing that's happened. This is how God has always functioned with his people. And then there's psalms of praise, prayers and psalms of joy and celebration that draw attention to what's good in the world and what God has done in it. They retell stories of God's faithfulness, and they thank Him for His provision for His people. And it's important to note that the the psalms of praise outnumber the psalms of lament. This tells us about the nature of prayer and worship. They teach us not to ignore the pain in the world, but to be forward-looking with hope to a better day when God will make all the sad things come untrue. And much like the book of Revelation that we spent about a year studying, the Psalms reveal an anticipated day when evil will be dealt with and purged from existence. So as Christians, we're not to ignore the reality of evil and try and explain it away. We call it what it is, we grieve it, we lament it, even if we don't understand it. But we're also not to lose hope that there is a real God full of compassion and justice and mercy who will deal with it on his own terms, in his own timing, in his own way, for our good. That's the tension of the Psalms. That's the tension of the whole Bible. That's the tension of the Christian life. And one reason we love Christmas in our culture is because it's a time of this great anticipation. We wait to gather as family and friends, to enjoy community, the giving of gifts to each other in a way we don't the rest of the year. But sadly, we live in a culture that has so over-desired that they've sapped the joy out of it. And we've made it about something that it's not. And so many of us in this room probably don't enjoy the holidays because of evil. It's stolen that joy from us. Many of us spend the holidays grieving that loss. 
And how, however, even that pain stirs in us a deep longing for a better day. When I go home to Lexington, I just went home for Thanksgiving. I have, and I'll talk about this more at the end, I have this wonderful memory of my childhood. Uh, I loved growing up where I grew up. I had this park behind my house that was just a large playground with everything a kid could ever want. And all my friends lived in the neighborhood, and we all played together. It was beautiful. But then my parents got divorced when I was 19. And, you know, a lot of people will say to me, well, at least you were 19. It's like, divorce is, that, that doesn't make it any better. Like, it doesn't matter if you're 19 or if you're 5 or if you're 50. Your parents getting divorced is a very tragic thing. And so at 19, when my parents got divorced, the home I grew up in, they had just moved out of it, and I lost that home. So, like, now when I go back home to Lexington, I stay in a, a, a friend's house in a neighborhood I didn't grow up in, and I kind of grieve the loss of home. I don't have that anymore. Um, and so the holidays, when I, when I go home, I have these great memories of my childhood, but I also have this deep pain and sadness that I can't bring my kids home to celebrate with the family that I grew up with in the house that I, I grew up in. And so I'm left asking in those smaller moments a bigger question of, aren't things ever going to get better? Is this sadness ever going to go away? Will good have the final say? Is the anticipation we feel ever going to be fully realized and satisfied by a benevolent God? And the scriptures, Psalm 72, says, yes, indeed, it will. Because it tells us about this better kingdom that's going to overthrow all the earthly kingdoms. And there's really, that's, that's my two points. There's a future hope here that I want to describe in detail. And then there's a present peace that I think we are called to experience, that we can experience in this life. And this future hope, this, this uh, kingdom that is to come, it's very specific in Psalm 72 about what that kingdom will be like. There's four characteristics of the kingdom that the God of Christianity will bring to bear on this world. One, it is righteous. Two, it's everlasting. Three, it's universal. And four, it's blessed. So look at verses one through seven here. It says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your people with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor and the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass. In his days may righteousness flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. It talks about this perfect right rule of God. So the God who created all things but who, um, who has seen it all unravel and become a broken mess, is saying, I am going to make it right, and I'm going to bring to bear a kingdom that is going to grow from the calling of Abraham to follow God. It's going to grow into this kingdom where things are totally different from the kingdoms of this earth. Because in this kingdom, they will defend, we will defend the cause of the poor. This is why we do things like we're doing for Witsit, Right? This is why the church is called to participate in the alleviation of poverty and trying to help that and trying to bless the poor. We don't do it just to get a pat on our back to feel like we're good people. We do it because it is the calling of the church. These are the things we are to care about, and this neighborhood has provided ample opportunity for us to participate in these things and to bless 
those who need the help with the own resources that we ourselves have been given. We give in that generosity. And we give deliverance to the children of the needy. In a culture where children were, if they were useless, they were just thrown out, babies were just disregarded, children are valued in this kingdom. Children are seen as a blessing and a joy with all of the crazy anxiety and stress that my own children can give me. I need to be reminded that our children are given to us as a blessing and as a gift. And that we are to promote that. We ourselves are to operate as children within this kingdom. Needy and dependent upon the king who will meet our needs. And we live in a culture that is all about our own independence and our own accomplishments and our own achievements. And it's saying the citizens of this kingdom are dependent. He will crush the oppressor. So in kingdoms where people are often oppressed, where there's tyranny, he's saying he is going to create a culture where people are not treated unfairly, where there's fairness, there's righteousness, there's goodness. And although Israel was to be this countercultural kingdom that valued the poor, judged fairly, stood again against corruption and tyranny, cared for children as valued image bearers, and shared wealth and prosperity with everyone, they obviously fell short of that, of that vision and that calling because they were never meant to be that fully realized kingdom. They were meant to be a foretaste of it, of a better kingdom. And so David prayed for it. David longed for Israel to be the kingdom God commanded it to be, but he fell short. We see here, too, that this kingdom is to be everlasting. Verse 15 and 17. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All the nations will be called blessed. May the whole earth be filled with his glory forever. Amen and amen. This righteous kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Isaiah 40, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah 11, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This, the church, I've said this up here before, the church is supposed to be the closest experience to what this kingdom will be while we're here on earth in this present reality. That's why the church is supposed to care about what is right. It's supposed to be a group of people who judge fairly, a group of people who care for the children, who care for the poor, who care for the oppressed. Because in it, we're supposed to receive these tastes of what it is to come. Sadly, the church is also a broken entity, and we do this very imperfectly. But this, as David prayed this for Solomon, this needs to be the prayer for the church. This needs to be the blueprint of what Flat Rock is really about and cares about. That's why we talk a lot about Flat Rock being a hospital. It needs to be a place where people can be known, people can engage in their own brokenness and find healing, and that needs to be promoted here. Because what we're doing now is what God will establish forever. Forever. 
So his kingdom is righteous, his kingdom is everlasting, his kingdom is universal. It talks about David's kind of drawing the map here for what he wants this kingdom to be. And he taught the known, in the known world, you had Tarshish and you had Sheba and Seba and you had the river Euphrates and these were marking these northwest, east and south boundaries of the known world. And he's saying this kingdom should spread and its favor for the people should spread universally all over the world. Little did he know that the kingdom that is coming, that the kingdom that Christ will bring to bear, is cosmic in scope. It is truly universal because it's all, it's all his. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not a single square inch of all of creation which Jesus does not say mine. It's all his. And he's coming to bring his kingdom to bear. And right now, while that physical kingdom is not here, there's a spiritual kingdom that is growing. This is what the calling of the church is. This is a great commission. That people may bow their knees and say, I hope in this kingdom. And so we are to spread the news about this king who has come and who's coming again. Talks about the licking of the dust. His enemies will lick the dust referring to what we talked about last week and we've talked about before, Revelation 19. Jesus is going to bring it to bear through His Word. So here's what's unique about Christianity. The God of Christianity does not bring His kingdom to bear by violent force. Like every other earthly kingdom, He does not need to wage war, as we talked about, with bullets and bombs and guns. He can bring His kingdom to bear with His words with the sword of his tongue, as it talks about. That's utterly unique about the hope that we have as Christians. It speaks to the power of God's Word. While God's Word can transform the human heart from a heart that is restless and frustrated and sad and depressed into a heart that has hope, so too can he transform the physical creation a place abounding with goodness and favor and hope. That's what it talks about the next characteristic, the fourth characteristic. It's going to be blessed. It will be growing and rich and fruitful. The church is always growing and rich and fruitful. No matter how broken what we do here at Flat Rock is, how imperfect it is, no matter how much evil tries to stop what we're doing, and vanquish the church, the church has, and we've seen it, it has been growing throughout history into every single crevice of the known world. In fact, you know, I went on a mission trip. One of the coolest things I've ever seen is I went on a mission trip to Africa, and I went into this random village where the tribesmen made their huts out of cow dung, and it was in about the most remote place I've ever been in my entire life. And we went and talked to those people, and because a missionary went there decades ago, they all worshiped Jesus. And I just had a moment where I realized, if the gospel can make it here, it, it can make it anywhere. God will grow his, his, his spiritual kingdom in His own power and might, by His grace. His kingdom comes to bear by grace. And that's why it's helpful to for us to travel and to see the world and to see these different places where people are professing the name of Jesus. That's why it's good for Ryan to go to Japan and visit Daisuke and worship in a church there and help him find a church. 
it's deeply encouraging and life-giving to see that this kingdom is coming to bear in a spiritual sense right now as a foretaste of the physical kingdom that will actually come. So, that, how does that kingdom affect our present peace? So that's the question. I'm not even sure. I, I, I struggle with how to present this. I think this is a question we all need to consider in our own hearts. I, ha- I think I have some answers, but it's something that I'd really encourage you to spend this Advent season asking yourself. How can the future hope of your faith give you a present peace? You know, and I was thinking about this, like the holidays, the holidays can very easily, especially as a family, move into the, the, a space of just chaos, right? Trying to get all the gifts. I mean, Natalie and I are like stressed out because we don't have decorations on the front of our house and we just feel like super sad about that. And our Christmas tree's not up and we went and stayed in my friend's house and all the Christmas decorations are up and it feels so festive and we're just total failures in that sense. And so we're feeling shame about that and like, what is this? Why do we do this to ourselves? And then, you know, we haven't done our Christmas shopping yet and so we're trying to make lists and plans and all that kind of stuff. And not once have we asked ourselves or said to each other, why don't we pray with our family or read the Word of God or worship together tonight. Instead, we get very easily, even your pastor, gets very caught up in the holiday minutia and distraction. And it starts to feel somewhat traumatic. Stress and anxiety and depression and even grief, depending on your stories and where you come from, like it can be really traumatic to the point where you're just kind of like, you just, this is a four weeks of just going through the motions until it's over. And that's not at all how we are called to live as Christians. It's not even, not, it's not even, not, it's not even about how we're called to live. There's just a better way to live. There's a better option for us. And in all the cases of trauma, and, you know, Meg, you deal with trauma. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But when people are experiencing trauma, I always encourage them that the most important thing is to slow their life down. Slow it down. (laughs) Live hour by hour, minute by minute, day by day. Just do what's necessary. Do the vitals. Eat well. Sleep. Be with your family and friends and the people you trust. And hang on to the truth. It is, in my most traumatic moments, it's always the simple truths of life. This is why Mike is always really great about this, just telling me really simple things that are so life-giving. Like, you are loved. We are here for you. It's those simple truths that we have to reorient ourselves to, that we have the opportunity to reorient ourselves to during this holiday season. So we, can, we have a very practical way as Christians to combat the craziness of the culture by being in the Word of God by being with our family. You know, so when I go home, um, and I'll, I'll end with this, but when I, when I go home, I always love going to the park behind my house, seeing the house I grew up in, walking that neighborhood. Sometimes I run it. I eat at this pharmacy that's like a fountain place with milkshakes and cheeseburgers that I've been eating at since I was born, basically. And it's just like super nostalgic and deeply comforting. 
And one thing I love is that I've, I've started taking my girls with me. And so now every time we go to Lexington, they want, they, that's like priority number one. Let's go see the park that you grew up in. And let's walk around and let's play in that park. And so that kind of rewrites a lot of trauma for me and my story to go and experience that with them and to see the joy rediscovered of this place that now is riddled with a lot of hurt and pain for me because of my parents' divorce and because of what's been lost. But when I see them playing and enjoying it and reveling in it, it starts to bring back that, that sense I had as a kid. And so as I was thinking about that this weekend, I was thinking that's kind of what Advent should be about. And we have such a great opportunity as a family to rediscover the joy of this season through our children, to see the anticipation they have, to see the happiness and the joy they have about what this season should truly be about, which is a Savior coming, condescending Himself, bringing His kingdom to bear through grace and through love and not through violence and oppression and force. And seeing our kids revel in those songs and in those stories together, that's a real opportunity to, for us to reorient ourselves back to something that's meant to be really good and life-giving. But it requires intentionality. It requires discipline. It requires time, right? I can't just go through the motions. I have to sit down with my children. I have to experience things with them. And now, that works really well for a family. If you don't have a family or you don't have kids... You can experience that with friends. You can experience that with other families. We just prayed. Families inviting single people into our families. What if we were a church that actually did that? That cared for singles in our congregation by making them part of our family and bringing them in and giving them those experiences that they're not able to have right now. They may have one day, but maybe that it's lost because of where they live or season of life that they're in. But we can discover the joy of Advent together. We have to rediscover it together. And the holidays are often such a time of feeling alone that we, we need each other. So as a church, we need to take on the challenge of looking around this congregation and asking ourselves, who are the people that need the fellowship of this kingdom? Who need the love of, the brothers and, of their brothers and sisters in Christ? And I have to admit, I haven't done a good job of doing that. And so you can pray for me, that I lead my home well. Um, in fact, today is a, is a hard day just for various reasons that I won't get into, but it feels like a hard day. It feels like a day where I'm losing and evil's winning. And so I want to be a father and I want to be a pastor who has the intentionality and the discipline to create this kind of culture in my home for the good of my family, for the good of this church. So how can we slow down, take a deep breath, and live in this present moment with the peace that we were meant to live with because of that future hope? That's the question we need to ask ourselves this Advent season. Let's pray.